For those who know me, the next phrase is going to be an understatement, and I'm just assuming that by this point in time, 80 shows into this podcast that everybody who's listening, you all basically know me anyways. So this is an understatement for all of us. I have an amazing ability to get lost inside of my own head. Here's a concrete example. I can leave my house in Washington, D.C. and ride my bike to the Dunkin' Donuts in Poolsville, Maryland, which the way that I do it is a little over two hours long, and I can have zero memory of any of that ride. I will be so deep in my own world that I will arrive almost as if teleported to the Dunkin' Donuts in Poolsville, Maryland for a cup of coffee, black, and a donut, hopefully with sprinkles on it, but maybe if I'm in a crunch, I'll go with the jelly-filled one, strawberry only. I've always wanted to have a superpower. When I was growing up, I was a huge comic book fan. Nomad and Wolverine were my favorites. That may tell you something about me. It may not. Who knows? But I always wanted to have a superpower. I realize now at the age of 42 years old that my superpower is the ability to overthink way, way, way too much. Here's also another weird fact, an example by way of things. The song Hallelujah by Jeff Buckley is six minutes and 53 seconds long. It is one of my absolute all-time favorite songs in the world, in the history of music, in the everything of everything. I love it. I've loved it since the first moment I heard it on the West Wing to today. I listened to Jeff Buckley's six minute and 53 second song, Hallelujah, on repeat on a red eye flight from San Francisco International to Washington, D.C., Dulles Airport. That is a five-hour and zero-minute flight. That is 44 times in a row that I listened to Jeff Buckley's Hallelujah, and I didn't get bored of it because I was so deep into that music and into the world that that music was generating that the time went by without my noticing it. My name is Rob Kelly. This is Criterium Nation, a show about life lived one corner at a time. The reason that I bring up my superhuman ability to overthink everything is because we've arrived at December. December is the official time of the year of our cycle around the sun. I could tell you about why there are seven days in a week and why the, the lunar calendar preceded the solar calendar, which preceded the celestial calendar, because I've looked all these things up because I got curious why there's seven days in a week and why some months have 28 and why January 1st is New Year's Day, even though nothing astronomically, astrologically, celestially, lunar happens of significance on January 1st. Spoiler alert, I'll get through all of it. There is no good reason for January 1st to be New Year's Day. It's a tax thing that somebody sometime long ago decided that this would be a good time to start the tax cycle again. Yes, the Roman god Yanis, the two-faced god looking forwards and backwards. That's where we get the name from, but that has nothing to do with the fact that this is the first day of the year. The first day of the year used to be March 1st. If you're British and you collected taxes from the English government, that was your New Year's Day. Whatever, this is weird. But 
the fact is, is that December gives us an opportunity to take a look at what has happened in the year that has passed and project forward, forecast forward what will be happening next. But you cannot, as a historian, I cannot allow us to look at what will happen in 2022 without first stepping back to look at what has happened in 2021. And we have had an amazing year. We have had highs. We have had lows. We've had surprises. We've had things that have happened that we all knew were going to happen. We all suspected they were going to happen. We all talked about them happening, and then they happened, and they still surprised and shocked us because this was such an incredible year, especially after what happened in 2020 with a pandemic-shortened or pandemic-erased year, depending on where you live. So today, we have a retrospective, the first of two retrospective episodes completing the full year cycle for us before we launch into the next season in the next year, we'll be talking about what happens next, what the future holds. Today's episode is with Adam Mills, the head coach of Source Endurance, and it's about those things that we learned, that we should have learned if we were paying close attention to what was happening in the world around us. If we were paying close attention to what was happening in the racing that we were all so enthralled in. We've broken it down into four parts, four statements. And Adam, myself, and our intrepid senior men's correspondent, Alan Schroeder, are here to help you figure it all out, help you piece it together, and help it make sense so that you can do your own retrospection, your own insight into what has happened. Maybe you can overthink way too much on your next ride out to the Dunkin' Donuts in Poolsville, Maryland. We are a proud part of the Wide Angle Podium network of shows. WideAnglePodium.com, your home for all the shows that are there. Go check out the Grodio, Nowhere Fast, Cyclocross Radio. Huge week for Cyclocross Radio coming forward with the Pan Am Games that just happened and the U.S. National Championships and Cantini. That's right, there's a G in there, but if you're from the suburbs, it's Cantini Park in Wheaton, Illinois, one of the suburbs of Chicago. We also have the Slow Ride Podcast. It's great. They're doing the yeoman's work. This week, our show is brought to you. And this is going to be hard. This is going to be confusing. This is going to be something that people who know me well, like all of you, as we've ascertained before by this point in time, you know me very well. You know that I'm not like a really big virtual bike rider. I've never been somebody to, you know, rock the trainer in the middle of the winter. I would always put way too much clothes on and go out even when it was below 20 degrees and the wind chill was near zero. That's Fahrenheit, not Celsius. We're not weak from Chicago. We, we have the capacity to power through the below zero Celsius temperatures. But when I broke my hand this year, I went and bought myself a new trainer, a new smart trainer. I hooked it up and oh my God, the technology for smart trainers has improved so dramatically. And with the virtual racing and virtual riding platforms that are out there, I really, really started to enjoy it. And when I learned about the Echelon Race League, I've really, really started to enjoy that too. What is the Echelon Race League? It is a collaboration between Project Echelon, 
RGT and a lot of the biggest and best in real life bike races here in the United States. There are races happening periodically during the course of December, January, February that are geared to bring attention to real life criteriums, real life road races here in the United States. They've had the first couple of races already, and Eric Hill from Project Echelon has posted about his results and about the power output on those races, and they really come close to mirroring the real-life version of the race just from the convenience of your paint cave, of your garage, of your bike room, or wherever it is that you happen to have your smart trainer set up. So go to echelonraceleague.com to find out more about what is happening in the Echelon Race League. Register today for community league events. Do whatever you need to do to find out. And you can go to YouTube and watch replays of the races. They are broadcast with Brad Soner, Lauren Hall. They do a really great job of recapping and providing you with information about the races. And it's just a really well done product. Hopefully we can translate that well done product into in real life races in the in the future. The league is also the first fully inclusive esports league offering paracycling events and avatars for athletes with disabilities. That's echelonraceleague.com. Go there, check it out. You will not be disappointed. So here we are. Retrospective episode number one, getting way deep inside of my own head. Fortunately, I've got Adam Mills and Alan Schroeder here to help break it all down. And we're doing that right now. But one of the great things about being an academic podcast that this show is, is that we can think retrospectively about the things that we did or should have learned during the course of the year. And so that's the entire premise today, is what did we or what should we have learned during the course of the year? I am joined, as almost always, of course, by my intrepid co-host and coffee connoisseur, Alan Schroeder, all the way from Boise. How's the Cortado going today, Alan? Oh, it was delicious. Yeah, it's like the uh, the perfect Cortado temperature here uh, right now. Warm, but not too warm. It's going good. Glad to be here. Glad to find out what I should have learned because at this point, I feel like I learned nothing. <laughs> well, that's the beauty of retrospectives. We can always remind ourselves of the things that we learned back in June that we have subsequently forgotten and we'll need to relearn again in June of next year. Like it's really, really hot at Armed Forces Cycling Classic every year. The professor for today's show, uh, our guru and intelligent and well-spoken individual is Adam Mills, the president and head coach at Source Endurance, and also the uh, road warrior, the RV road warrior. How's it going in San Diego, Adam? It's good. It's good to be back. So Wednesday at 1 p.m., I started driving from Denton, Texas. And I was on my front door. I was in my house at 4 p.m. West Coast time on Thursday. That is some serious motivation, but the beauty is you were driving your own bathroom. You were driving your own napping location. You were driving everything you needed. Right. So stop a quick stop at Walmart, 
and I was on my way and you know you just pull over and sleep for a few hours in a safe safe spot aka where there's a lot of people <laughs> and then you start driving again so uh, I'm really glad it's done what we've done is we've broken down some of the lessons learned this year into larger you know topic points and each topic point becomes he starts obviously with the ones that I think we're the most heated about or the ones that we have individually or collectively spoken the most about to some of the more esoteric ones that can be the topic of philo philosophical studies with the premise that everything here is a thing that we should have learned. All of the topics are sentences or topic sentences or potentially theses if you are, you know, using your academic hat. So the first thing that we should have learned this year, and this harkens back to something that Adam wrote about back in, I think, May or April, it's hard to beat a Southern California sprinter in a 60-minute crit. Adam, tell us what we're talking about here. There's a few different facets to discuss on that one, and and I guess I'll kick this off with saying, Alan, you made a comment like you don't feel like you've learned much, but in reality, I bet if you step back and think about it, you learned a lot just by talking with different people about how races go. So give yourself a break because you're you're actually one of the more studious people in the sport. And, and it always feels like you're not until you start talking with people that truly aren't. And, and then you, you come away from the conversation like, oh my God, that person really just doesn't get it. Like they're just, they're just good in spite of themselves, not because of anything they do. So, so give yourself a break on that because you're, you're better than most, we'll put it that way. So the 60 minute hard to beat a Southern California criterion team is it's due to a few things. First and foremost is that like, let's give, let's give this California team whose name rhymes with region some credit where they're due like they have they they are a for lack of a better way to put it a carbon copy of the completely dominant criterium team that united healthcare had back ending in like 2014 roughly 15 14 i think and some of the guys like justin remembers that team a number of people some of the people in, in, involved with that squad were part of that team so they they know what it looks like that team is it's it's ran by some people that really know how to race bikes and that can teach everyone. And they have a very comprehensive like video film study sessions and they have the first person cameras, which they can look at, especially when they sync them all when they have their meetings. And they also have like some of the best horsepower. So man, it's, they're just really hard to beat. And when you get people that are really good and they play together really well, it just, the sum of the parts is so much more than the individuals, right? And, and a really good case of that is I've been, I'm an NBA fan, so I've been, I didn't get to see the game, but I've been watching the, or listening to the breakdown, because again, I had 20 hours to drive, about the Phoenix Suns and Golden State Warriors matchup. And they were talking about some of the ways the Phoenix Suns and were coordinating defense and, and those Five guys really play like there's seven on the court. But if they weren't that coordinated, they play like there were five, right? Same thing goes for, for the Legion team. So first off, they're really good. They're always going to be 
pretty much impossible to be, not impossible. They're gonna be, everyone's beatable, but they're gonna be hard to beat. Second, the 60 minute criterion, I don't think it's long enough at an elite level to really allow for like the different, the different chess pieces to be moved into position and then to, and then to be acted upon. So it's kind of like you can't, there's not enough time to do like a beginning, a middle stanza and an ending stanza, which really disappoints me. Not because I don't think it would make Legion any more beatable, but it would make them win in a lot of different ways, which I think would be really fun to watch and even to comment on right now with one hour. I mean, it's pretty easy. Like I, I did a bunch of training with Sam Boardman over the winter, and I know that his threshold power is really big, and he can ride that for 40 to 50 minutes without any help. So that's pretty much puts you into five to go. And that's that's and he's only one guy in the team. Can we break it down to the physiology of it, to the kilojoules of it? Because this is, I know, a conversation that you and I have had about you know, in a elite level criterium, you're looking at a thousand kilojoules per hour worth of effort. That's and that's for the mediocre elite riders. And that you need to have a a kilojoule output of a certain amount where you are going to start breaking down these men and women who are at the top end of the sport. You know, can you kind of fill us in on what that means? Usually a, a lot of elite athletes, men and women, um, I didn't even comment on the women Legion team because, because they're so dominant. I think Skylar has an on podium percentage of over 95%. Like, what is that? She's definitely the best paid woman bike racer in the United States this year. If you think about her wins from Toad, everything that she's done this year, she's collected quite a bit of money. She's probably the best paid American domestic bike racer, man or woman. Yeah, but don't take away anything from Kindle. The two work together. I mean, it's, 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 they're, they're amazing and they're both world-class and they're fun to watch. And I knew Skylar when she was like 14 years old with her racing with her sister, Sam, who's coming back, which is going to be rad. And you see Skylar like dominating these women's races and you're like, man, she's really good. How old is she? And people are like 14. It's like, what, what? So anyway, um, that's the women's side. Uh, so the, on, on the elite racing side for, for fatigue rates, like a thousand to 1500 kilojoules in a criterium is, is they're kind of inflection points. So at a thousand kilojoules, probably half of an elite field is done racing. They don't know it yet. And if you ask them, are they done racing? They will tell you no. But when you look at power files, they don't have those like three jumps in a row of 1100 watts anymore. Like bam, 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 right? Or three corners in a row where they can do that. It's just not there anymore because they're too tired. At 1500 kilojoules, so this is roughly the 75 minute mark for, for a rider like a Sam Boardman. Um, maybe 85 minutes even because Criterions have a lot of coasting. But anyway... Again, like 50% of people who are left kind of hit that same that same wall, right? And Alan, you probably remember some of this just from, from your own racing and like, oh, well, people are getting tired. So all of a sudden the leash gets a little longer, right? And then you can kind of break people up and, and make more race impacting efforts. Uh, and that's kind of how you anecdotally feel it is, is, oh, everyone, I was in the box or nothing was really opening up until about 75 minutes in. 
and then a lot of stuff happens, right? So anyway, you're looking at like 50, anything after 1500 kilojoules at the high intensities of criteriums, like a lot of people fall apart pretty quick. So, so that's why I think they should be longer, but then you run into like other issues of, I, I personally think any, any criterion with a pro and then title should be minimum of 90 minutes. I think most of the guys in the the pro field would agree with that as well, that 60 minutes definitely isn't quite long enough. But when you do get to that 90 minute to like two hour mark is when the races start getting really interesting. Um, and almost, I want to say even a little more dynamic, especially when you're dealing with a team like Legion. So here's the thing with Legion too. And Justin told me this is <clears throat> you think about the only races that they've lost definitively were armed forces and U.S. Pro Nationals, right? And both of those races were 90 minutes plus. So that said, they were 90 minutes, they put more pressure on Legion, maybe they're more beatable. It, it's like, you know, in every sport, there's a counter and, a, and another counter, right? So that being said, you can't, you can't imagine that they don't know that and they wouldn't adjust, right? Because they're too, they're too good not to, and they're too smart. So, but, but it does provide more opportunity. It also provides opportunity to do things like put riders up the road and figure something else out and, and just, just creates like more options. But is that what people want to see? Is it not? I don't know. You brought up armed forces and you brought up pro crit nationals. Those two events, three races, but two events had something else in common in that it didn't matter what happened the day before. And it didn't matter what was going to happen the next day. It was, these were standalone events where all that mattered is who won that day. We did this year have a national criterium series like USA crits. And I don't know what's going to happen next year. If there'll be a PRT, if there'll be a replacement for USA crits or whatever it happens to be. But this is where we talk a little bit about Alan's team CS Velo, because this is something that Alan has brought up a couple of times. And I'd like to get kind of this out there is, is the team strategy. And so, Alan, if I remember correctly, we were talking about Boise or we were talking about Tulsa, one of the earlier races, and you had indicated that CS Velo was racing for the team win in that competition as opposed to the individual win in that competition. So you were trying to stack as many riders as you could for the fifth through 15th place as opposed for one through five. With armed forces, with pro crit nationals with the way that those races broke down, it didn't matter. Wildlife wanted to win nationals. They made, they took their shot. Project Echelon took their shot. Sam Bassetti and Eric Young from Elevate, they sure as heck took their shot at that race. And you could look at Connor Saley with ButcherBox in the first day of Armed Forces, did the same thing. Steven Vogel did the exact same thing. They took shots where their teams didn't, fear losing as much as they feared not winning or vice versa. I'm not really sure which way I should be saying that. Do you think, Adam, that having a team competition in a race or in a race series it, as a separate and distinct competition is good? Is that the way that this racing should be done? The way that USA Crits was formatted this year, I think they did a shitty job with the team stuff. I think, so if you, I, and I, I like making analogies, it's kind of my jam, but 
the team competition in the Tour de France has been pretty damn good to watch the last few years. But the team competition in the USA crits races, and, and it does lend itself to the one-hour thing, in that if you have a one-hour criterion, I mean, there's a 99% chance that it's going to be a field sprint. If you're going to have it be an hour, man, you might as well have it be 10 laps and just call it a day because the outcome doesn't change. The only difference is, is how long you're going to ask Frankie and Dre to talk. And it doesn't really matter because no one's tired enough to influence the outcome of, of any races, right? And then the team competition becomes how do you how do you get points and now you stack them in the finishing 20. So that's a valid it's a valid strategy. But I think if the races were 90 minutes, it would present more opportunities to have team points be scored in other ways, which really matter a lot too, right? And the 60 minute thing just makes it too short for that to happen. It's like, who can, if Legion's gonna lead it out and finish one, two, and three, like they're gonna win the team competition just from that. I, I like the idea of having it because I think it could be really interesting to watch. Also, USA Chris did a terrible job of telling you why that mattered or making it matter. It was all the Legion show, right? Which is cool. They're, they're the big name headliner, but, but like, the team thing was kind of fun. <laughs> it could be, but it's not fun when you're enabling like one, twos, and threes, or the races are so short you still have six riders left with one lap to go, right? So I I like the idea. I think it's doable. Like the, the way that uh, CS Velo trying to stack people in the top 10 was was winning. I mean, that that worked for Cliff Bar. And is it 29? It was pre-pandemic. So it was like either 2019 or 2004. I mean, it's all the same. <laughs> it was 20, 2018 was when Cliff won the team competition. And they won it that way. Zach told me about it. Um, I don't know if it was his, if it was his architect, if he was the architect for that strategy, but they weren't, they were trying to win, but they were also trying to put people in the top, top 10 and top 20. And so that works when you don't have a legion there putting one, two, three, four, one, two, three, five. But Alan, see my question for you is with CS Velo, you have Andrew Janot, who is a incredible bike racer. He's an incredible finisher, which is critical in a criterium that you have somebody who can not only withstand the 1500 kilojoules, but have come out of that with something at the end. I know that we've got bike racers in the United States who, who are just, they just don't fatigue. You know, Adam, you've talked about Alex Hohen. He never fatigues. Like, you know, 90 miles into a road race, he's still capable of putting out the same power that he could put out in the first two miles. Why, you know, Alan, why not commit to Andrew taking a shot? I would love to see him not just finish fourth, but finish one, two, or three. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't ever say that we were not giving him his shot to do it. I think... Maybe it was a lack of just like the power of the rest of us. I mean, you know, the idea of trying to go head to head with the Legion train or the Legion train and the best buddies train and the butcher box train is really, you know, what ends up getting in the way there. So at some point in the night, you know, you have to kind of accept the fact that we're not going to be able to 
put five guys on the front and give Andrew the perfect lead out. And to, I mean, to that point, if we're going to talk about Andrew specifically, he enjoys being more of a free floater than having all of us there. But again, like, like you said, just the same thing with the 60 minute crit, you know, you can easily have four or five teams that have five guys left and you just don't have the room on the road for five different trains to all be doing the same thing. How old is Andrew? He's 30, 29, racing age 30. I thought you were going to say he's like 21. And I was thinking, man, when I was 21, like, man, just brushing my teeth before I went to class was was like high quality consistency right there. (laughs) It's about as as tough as my life got. So so asking a 21-year-old to like battle these, you know, if you're battling like an Eric Marcotte and a Danny Summerhill and a Travis and, oh, that's only one of the three teams that you mentioned – that's a big ask for for a 21-year-old. So Yeah, to Andrew's credit, like he he has no fear to go up against those guys, but he really kind of ends up having to do a lot of it on his own. Uh we'll definitely watch out for him during the race and he had he got pretty unlucky a few times this year. So one of us would go back for him after he was put back into the race and kind of like guide him back through the peloton. It's it, it's a tough job. It's a tough ask to to have somebody be there kind of on their own just weekend after weekend. Here's a statistic from this year, and we'll leave this as the kind of the finishing point for this topic. There were 14 men's D1 teams. Now, not every single USA Crits race was D1 only, but I went through and took a look at all of the races that happened this year within USA Crits. 14 D1 teams. Only four of those 14 teams put riders on the podium this year at any point in time. Are you are you counting the Legion and the Legion amateur and the Legion? <laughs> well, I mean, it was it was USA Crits, so it was only six people. So so you know, I, I know Ama was the winner at Winston Salem, but he's technically not on the USA the UCI Legion team. He's on the the developmental t- part of it, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But the teams were Best Buddies, Butcher Box, Legion. And automatic racing. If you expand that to the wide angle podium, to the WAP, you add three additional or four additional teams into that for for a you know a, a grand total of half of or yeah half the peloton. And even then, Andrew was one of them with CS Value. He finished fourth once. Amino Rip had a guest rider and Frank Travieso who finished fourth once. How does one Frank of the Cliff Bart? Um, I think he's immortal. He was one of the Eternals. When I was like 24, Frank was an aged, vet, like a veteran rider then. I mean, he's got to be, he's got to have like an AARP membership. <laughs> he gets the discount at Denny's. I love Frank. I think he's awesome. I love what he does racing wise. Like he's so savvy and so like he, he feels the race on a level that's like academic and textbook to all of us. And he just feels it right. Which is a different level of understanding. So Frank is Frank is awesome as a racer. I don't know him. I don't know him as a person at all. He's awesome as a racer. He will race until he's seven hundred and twenty-three years old. I have definitely seen him post-race, not afraid to have a glass of whiskey with Frank Cundiff and anybody who's willing to come to his table. So that makes him a good guy in my book. To finish out the list here, Good Guys Racing was the only other men's team to finish on the wide-angle podium with Cormac Daly at Winston Salem. The women's was a little bit wider spread. There was more of a of a pool, but 
six of the women's teams had somebody on the podium and then one additional team in um, butcher box there at the end and in Winston-Salem had somebody on the wide angle podium. So it was a tight knit group of people who found their way onto the podium. And this bleeds into topic number two. The reason that I was able to find this data is because I went back and I watched the game film. I went back and looked at the data and statistics that came from it. And I know this is one of Adam's favorite topics and it's a really terrible segue, but point number two, topic number two, in order to become a better rider, you have to watch the game film. I'm going to rant on this for a second. Go ahead and rant. We've, we've got, we each have our beers here. Well, mine's empty because I was, I'm thirsty. Oh, Might have to break for a second one. But uh, if you go back and you will not go back, if you look at every professional team sport that you can watch on television, plus more, all of them watch game film. So the guy that runs uh, Momentus, formerly Amp Human, formerly Topical Edge, his name is Jeff Byers, and he played NFL football. And so I uh, him him and I had a talk, and he told me about kind of how the week goes. When they get done playing on a Sunday night, they are handed – it's probably an iPad or tablet now, but they are handed film to watch on their flight home for their next game on Sunday night. And by a time that they show up to practice on Wednesday – so Wednesday is their first day of practice in the NFL, apparently – I might get this wrong. I'm not sure. But by the time he said, by the time that he shows up to practice their first walkthrough on Wednesday, he has watched 20 hours of game film for that next team. 20 hours on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday morning, five hours a day. How many bike racers have watched 20 hours of race film cumulative in their career? That is a small number. The ones that do are the ones that win. Like pretty sure Bora Hansgro and Sagan was winning field sprints. They were watching game film. I'm pretty sure de Kunick watches race film. I know Legion does, and and I've heard them break down races that almost went sideways. And and there's a reason that they you don't see mistakes because they they talk about stuff and they watch film. And even like I've given Rob shit about this, but Rob, next year on your podcast, every one of your guests, you need to tell them to re-watch the broadcast on their races. Before you will talk to them about it, because some of your some of your guests or some of your people on there, when they talk about how the race went for them, they're just flat wrong in some of the stuff like talking about, well, this break had these people in it. And that is not accurate. And you would know that if you watch if you watch the replay, you have like these elite writers that are supposed to be the top of the echelon and they're just not aware of what's going on in the races now. If it's first person, that's understandable, but this is like days later and they can watch the race film and see it. And you can learn a lot. You learn a lot when your heart rate's not like 180 beats a minute as you're racing through the roads, like worried about this crack or that manhole cover, or like if this person's gonna come over on you. You can just watch it from your office chair, like on a big screen, you know, having a having a latte. Like that's way easier way to learn about bike racing. So I would say that. Watch the race film. There's no way it can be bad for you. Yeah, I would say that's pretty spot on, honestly. Um, That's something that we did after both Boise Twilight and Salt Lake City. And for me personally, you know, 
when you're in the middle of the race and everything's happening, you like think you have an understanding of how things unfolded. Um, so you go into watching the the replay of it being like, okay, this is what happened here. And then you see like, oh, something like not completely different, but like that isn't what happened at all. And it just kind of like allows you to reevaluate like how you're perceiving things in the race and like definitely learn from it and see what you're doing wrong. And yeah, that proved to be like really helpful for us moving forward from Salt Lake. And what race did you do it in Boise in Salt Lake? Yeah. Boise in the first day of Salt Lake. Mm. So like halfway through the season, imagine if you would have done that from the beginning. Yeah. Mm. Right. You guys would have made those incremental improvements all the whole year up to that point. And it might've made a difference. I, I don't know that for sure. You can never know what might've happened. Right. But it's awesome that, that the team was able to figure out how beneficial it was because it's very possible you might be the second team to figure that out. <laughs> yeah, right. Right? So that puts you like half a season ahead of everybody else, right? I, and I would say that if Best Buddies watched race film, it was it was very little. And it was only for the race that like Danny Summerhill jumped the lead out train, right? Or maybe Danny is just under like, like so experienced he knew it was possible. But those guys, I thought that was a team that would be able to give Legion a run for their money. And, and they really kind of fizzled and that bummed me out because I, I those guys are so good. And I expected to see so much more from them. Well, yeah. And, you know, CS Fellow, we're a team of, you know, self-proclaimed stage racers who last year were trying to figure out how to be successful in crits. So the best way to do that was to go back and watch film from the races and yeah again learn from our mistakes so like if you're someone who wants to be successful in crits and you're like coming up through the ranks like like you're saying that's probably one of the best things you can do obviously outside of training is watch see what legion does see what other people are doing and why they're not succeeding i guess well and even Um, on a master's level so I, i race for monster racing formerly monster media and it's I think I'm like the only guy in the team without national championship stripes on my arms, which is pretty awesome. And we were at Tulsa and we couldn't beat Chad Cagle. Like Chad was amazing. There's worse guys to lose to than Chad Cagle. But every day after the races at dinner, everyone's got their phones out and we're watching the replays, like trying to figure out like when, like where in this race is Chad beatable and we, how can we take advantage of that? And we never got dialed in. I bet with like three or four more races, we would have been able to do it. But ultimately, Chad, Chad's a great rider and his teammate, Matt Ankeny, is super savvy. And, and together, they're two of the most experienced riders in the country. But but we're all watching film trying to figure it out. And, and it never was possible, but it was still fun. <laughs> and, and these are guys with national championship stripes in their arms, right? So, so it never, it never, you only stop learning whenever you stop trying to one of the things that comes with this topic is having access to the video. You can't watch game film if no game film exists. You know, one way to do it is to do it yourself, the Corey Williams style, you know, having your own GoPro and doing your own feed and and going back and looking at it that way. The other way, and I would argue that both of them are equally applicable, the other way is to have a broadcast to look at. We have this issue in bike racing in this country that we don't broadcast or when we do broadcast, we have incredibly low quality broadcast coverage. And if you are an event promoter, 
it's it needs to be a part of your package. You need to, if you're going to hold an event that is considered elite, that is considered professional, it needs to have a live, high-quality broadcast. And this year, we failed again miserably to have broadcasts that were of a substantially high enough quality that we can actually do something with. And even then, when we've got a broadcast that has a high enough quality, we're not funding the people to do the work because we've got Frankie. Frankie is an incredible broadcaster. Brad is an incredible broadcaster. Lauren and, and Chad, they are all incredible broadcasters. But with the exception of maybe, 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 maybe the Criterium Professional Championship, it was always one person doing the talking. They didn't have the support to do talking with multiple people, and one person carrying a broadcast is insufficient to do it. I mean, Frankie never had a spotter. We are, we, the wide angle podium, are sitting there feeding Frankie at his Twitter account with information as the race is going on about who's doing what, where they are. He'll mention something about Skylar Schneider and we'll say, well, don't forget this fact about her three or four days ago at a different race. And you need to have that level of professionalism and it's just not there yet. I know it costs money to hire multiple people to do the job, but like you look at Reggie Miller and TNT, they're not covering basketball with just one person. There's two people on the sideline and a third person, at least a third person, doing courtside coverage. You go to a larger ball sport like football, and there's going to be reporters all over the field. Why are we not investing in that infrastructure, Adam? I mean, that's a money issue. I don't know, I don't know how to fix that. I, I think you definitely need more than one person for the simple fact that like, how hard is it to talk that long, like asking, asking Frankie to talk like at Tulsa tough about every race all day long, like that, there, that's horrible. And, and he does a good job, but then I'm, I'm thinking when he, when he has what I would call misses in the elite race where he's just missing stuff in the women's and the men's race, by the time he gets to that race, he's so tired because he's sitting in the damn sun in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where it was approximately 400 degrees. I mean, you just get tired and your brain doesn't think, oh, this is whoever, like what, what happens when they're up the road in the women's race, even which, which he's not as tired for the women's race as the men's because the men go last. Like, and that's a big ask. I agree. He needs help. He needs, well, and then you have Dave Toll there at the live doing it in person there. And why aren't those two why isn't it the same voice? Why aren't they working together to talk about the same race at the same time and have them both have the audio going to both places? That's that's a technical question. I don't have an answer for that. I would say that Dave Toll and Frankie Andrea talking about the same race together would be pretty cool. Frankie was a director. He was a good director for a long time on some successful teams, and he's raced at a high level. Like He understands bike racing. But when he's so busy trying to do other stuff as a, as an announcer, he I don't think he gets the opportunity to talk about like what are the implications of these three people being up the road? How will that affect the next ten minutes of the race? And he knows that, but he doesn't get a chance to talk about it because he's too busy trying to do everything else. And that's not fair to him, you know. Dave Toll is an awesome announcer. I've known him forever, 
and it's the same thing. He just, it's just a lot, just a big ask. And, and, and as riders, I think you take it for granted. When I was racing full time, I always took the announcers for granted, but then you get in a race with a crappy announcer and you're like, who's up the road? What's the time? When are the premiums coming? You know, and a good announcer will tell you that. And Alan's been in the races where, I mean, Alan, you know, that the announcer can change the race if they're good, if they know what they're doing. Oh yeah, for sure. In terms of like getting the audience that's there at the race, like very hyped up, they're a necessity for sure. Um, because most of the people who are at a race don't, you know, have a great understanding of what's going on. They see us riding around in circles pretty quickly, but like the idea of a preem doesn't really mean anything, especially a points preem, like that probably goes over most of their heads. But yeah, if you have an announcer there who can, you know, feed them that information and build the excitement around the entirety of the race versus just the last five laps, like that's just going to benefit everybody. And I also wonder if like, you know, we don't have that many cycling media outlets at this point, but, you know, we do at this, or at least for this last season, have like flow bikes, GCN was doing some cyclocross stuff this year, and then also having USA Crits doing their own sort of media coverage. Like, I wonder if that's kind of spreading our limited resources, like a little too thin. It would be interesting to have seen what we could have done if like flow bikes was the one in charge of broadcasting our crits this year because they already have like all of the gear they could have announcers a lot of the technical issues that we ran into maybe they could have had already sorted out and that would have you know perhaps made watching crits online a bit more accessible michael sheehan are you are you listening can you can you make that help us make that happen <laughs> yeah <laughs> okay so on to topic number three here, which I think is kind of the the most fun of the topics that we could be covering today, because it's it's kind of the most free-flowing or free-formed one. We can't just focus on one type of racing for the sport of bike racing to prosper. Gravel, criterium racing, cross, mountain bike, road, as the tides rise, all the types of racing rise with it. Adam... You know, Alan is a cross racer on top of being a gravel racer from time to time. I think he even plays with a mountain bike. Uh, I have tried doing cross and broken my hand and hopefully we'll do it again someday. I'm coming to, to the Belgian Waffle Ride Survival Camp to learn how to do gravel. Why is this a fact? Why do we need all of these sports? There's, there's a bunch of different different angles to take on it. The, the broadest one is just getting more people involved is not a bad thing in the sport. So you look at look at basketball in the 90s when the dream team happened. That was the beginning of the NBA's like initiative to make it bigger worldwide. And what did you get from that? You got you got kids playing basketball on the street and in their driveways and March Madness tournament helps out and and you just get everyone playing basketball, right? It's not quite as easy for cycling because you have like bikes and helmets and shoes and wheels and tires and all this stuff. But the more people you can get riding on bikes and trying different disciplines, I think the more it's going to help like deepen the talent pool. Um, By talent pool, I mean, think about every kid playing basketball. And of that, I don't, I don't know these numbers. I'm making these up, but I know the numbers are pretty abysmal for an individual. So like say, say 10 out of a thousand kids that play basketball get to play in 
get to play, well, say 20 out of 1,000 get to play in high school. 10 out of 1,000 of those get to play in college. And then 10 out of 1,000 of those get to play in the NBA. So run the numbers and the chances of a, you know, a 12-year-old picking up a basketball because he watched a dream team playing in the NBA is virtually zero. But without those millions of kids playing basketball, we don't have a talent pool deep enough to find someone like Steph Curry, who you guys watch basketball. That guy is like, I mean, we're going to go watch the, the, the Warriors and Lakers play this spring because it's LeBron James and Steph Curry, two people that may never happen again in the NBA. But that's only possible because of the talent pool is super, super deep and broad. Right. And I think having gravel and mountain biking and all these different disciplines and asking athletes to do them all. One, it deepens a talent pool because people try different stuff and decide to do different things. Two, you get a racer like you, Alan, who who does a lot of different disciplines and it just makes you a better bike racer. How many guys that are good at cross aren't good in criteriums? There's not, it's not a very long list. How many, if you ask how many criterion racers are good at cross, it's, it's also not a very long list. <laughs> but if you're saying how many people are good mountain bike racers and good cross racers and good criterion racers, like you can probably name them all. And and that's really cool when someone's that skilled. And I wish it would have happened earlier because at that point you just get great athletes. And I think, I think the sport needs that. And we need, we need more like role models where you can say, where you look forward to these like head to heads and how things are going to play out and, and just generally like more entertaining and more fun to watch too. Because I got to imagine, you look at Colin Strickland, incredible gravel racer. He's a good cross racer when he wants to be. Well, like he shows up at Riverside Park at Crybaby Hill on the last day of, of Tulsa and opens that race up completely. Had he have been there earlier in the week, it could have been a different experience, but he was still only one person. You've got Gage Hecht from Avolo, the national criterium cha- national cyclocross champion, excuse me, and an incredible road racer overall. You've got somebody like Kerry Werner, who is the Pan Am cyclocross champion and in the line, hopefully, to become the you know national champion in the United States for cross, who is finishing top ten every single day at Intelligentsia. And then you get somebody like Scott McGill, who is just good at everything. He's just phenomenal. He he is is up there in the crit championship. He's, you know, getting top three, four, five this year in cyclocross races, even though he was riding on road shoes. You know, like Peter Stetna. Peter Stetna is probably a really great everything when it comes to bikes. You have to be a good athlete to be elite in any of these, which means you can be good in a lot of them too. Don't forget about Alan. Alan's got a pretty good, pretty good resume across different, uh, different disciplines too. So yeah, it's not so bad. Um, but yeah, I was, it's just interesting to me thinking about, you know, you talking about the talent pool depth where it's almost cycling can be like less specific than other pro sports where you have people like coming over from, soccer or ski jumping or just like other random sports and being really, really successful within cycling. But you don't see that. Like you don't ever have an NBA player who was like, I don't know, 
a, a rower first and then made it in the NBA and is super successful. I don't know, being able to draw people in from outside of cycling into whatever discipline it is, if it's gravel or road or cross, typically leads to them discovering that there are more disciplines to do. And then you just have like this lifelong cyclist who does everything. And I think that's really cool and something that is unique to cycling that other sports don't have. Yeah. And, and we can't limit us just to the men's side either. Obviously, it's it's critical to point out that there's a lot of phenomenal female athletes who do this as well, probably more so than, than men, because you've got somebody like Maggie Coles-Lister, who is a great road racer, and then also a phenomenal track racer. You get somebody like Starla Tedegrin, who is the former USA Crits champion, who is also a phenomenal mountain biker. Or Whitney Allison, who's just good at everything she touches when it's a bike. I have a, I have a Whitney story. Can I can I tell it? Go go ahead. We love Whitney stories because you know she's such an she searches for the limelight. So yeah, she does not at all. Actually, I have two of Whitney's pro women's pro world tour uh, numbers right there. I coached her for a few years um, until she left the women's pro pro road scene, but. Belgian waffle ride in Cedar City, which Whitney won. They start like 10 minutes behind the men. So I'm climbing the last climb, the last big climb of the day. And the women's announcer moto rolls up next to me. And I know that I know everyone in the car and the guy driving is like, hey, Whitney's like 30 seconds. No, like two minutes behind you. And I'm Whitney is faster up that hill than me. And I'm like, that's cool. And I'm thinking, okay, so she's probably going to catch me. But the only reason that bummed me out is because because of the helping out people that, you know, like men and women, then I would absolutely have to stop and let her get it clear of me before I could keep riding. I didn't want to do that. So I was motivated to keep going harder. But I'm also going up this hard climb and Whitney's faster than me on it by like three minutes faster. So I, I started asking more about the race. And in the meantime, I'm getting a sticky bottle from the vehicle. So... <laughs> So for probably five minutes, I'm hanging on to this water bottle that the guy driving has got the other hand on. And that's what enabled me to get to the top of the hill and not get caught by Whitney. And that's why I had finished like by the clock, I was nine and a half minutes behind her. But in real life, I was like 30 seconds in front of her. Maybe. So thanks to that sticky bottle. That's that's the only reason. Otherwise, she would have caught me. She would have cheered me on. I would have said, good luck, Whitney. I'm going to stop so that we're not together so that no one talks about anything and then it would have been fine and, and whatever. But that's my Whitney story. She's awesome. So all it took was a motor is what you're saying. All it took was a quad with a guy in it with a water bottle who was willing to hold, to drag me up that we didn't go any faster. I just didn't have to pedal, which saved me. Speaking of teamwork, that brings us to the last topic we'll cover today, which is crit racing is a full team sport. The best teams are the ones that typically win the most races. And again, this is probably going to circle back to, you know, a story about Legion of Los Angeles and how dialed in they are as a unit of 6, 12, 16, however many guys are in the race. Why is it, Adam, that despite the fact that we cheer on the winner, the Danny Estevez, the Justin Corey Williams, you know, the, you name it. Why is this a team sport? Man, 
it's I, I read something that related right or bike racing to very much like imperialism right or or like the 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 same concept behind chess where you have like your pawns and then your your royalty pieces which you sacrifice to enable the the king to to survive and to prosper right and cycling's got a lot of those same qualities to it uh, i know i mean i know so sam has the hair uh on the legion team um and sam's probably one of the best people that i've ever met in my life he's he's such a good person that when i'm around him and he tells me stories and stuff i legitimately feel like i'm not qualified to be there because i feel like i need to up my game at a personal level to be on the same level as sam so but sam is an integral part of the success of that team and and you know we never but no one ever talks about the way he influences the race right alec cowan is an integral part of that team. And those guys are crazy fast, but no one knows that because Sam usually gets a DNF because he, he's like, he burns off with three to go or two to go. And then he wants to watch the finish. So if you look at some of those photos, you'll probably see Sam cheering for his teammates from behind the barriers, which is cool without Sam, like some of those wins don't happen. And same with like with your with you guys, Alan. Like if you're trying to deliver, if, if Andrew's trying to get to the finish line, like without someone burning a really big match to make sure that he doesn't have to push wind inside of three to go, like he's twenty fifth versus tenth, right? And that's a big big deal. That's part of the beauty of cycling because you also just like any team sport, you need role players and finishers, right? Like what was that team? It was Carmelo Anthony when he was younger. Someone took a shot with like three seconds to go in the game and they missed. And there was a quote from him. I think it was Melo who said like, bro, why you sh- don't shoot that. I'm paid to take that shot. So that's his job to shoot that. So like that's, right. that's Andrew's job is to finish. Like that's not your job, Alan, to finish. So don't, don't try and like meet those expectations. Meet the expectations of, put them in a position to do it. So Legion's got some great finishers. They have some fantastic role players that they like that role. They're comfortable with that role and they play to that role really well. And and I think you need all of it and you need all of it at a high quality. And and without, without all of it, you don't have a great team. You have a good team, which three years ago would have been enough to be super successful. It's not right now. In his, to his credit, Sam did podium twice this year chasing the wild boar, uh, road racing criterium down in Southwestern Virginia. He, he won the crit, got second place in the road race. But when you do look at his results, there's a lot of 67th, 24th, 81st, but then on the road results, you know, you get the yellow or the gold water bottle. And it's just like an endless list of teammate, win, teammate, win, teammate, win, teammate, win. I think Adam, you pointed this out to me maybe, uh, I don't know, like in June when we were sitting in in Oklahoma, that those races, the Tulsa Tough races, the decision on who was going to win that race was a foregone conclusion by the time that Sam or Alec pulled off the front. I, yeah, I this dawned on me watching the first video of an Ontario crit where I wrote an article about it, like about how hard it is to come around in a, in a sprint. Right. 
and where Justin was like 45 miles an hour, some asinine high speed limit where he could have got a speeding ticket. Um, and, and I was watching that video from, I think it was Corey or Justin's camera. I was like, when does the outcome of this race become cemented? Like barring anyone falling down, when is the outcome like done? Right. So I think in that race, it was something like when Ama Ensek started his lead out with a minute and 12 seconds to go in the race, the outcome was done. Because from that point, the speed was so high that no one could come around and still be able to sprint. And there's no organization behind them with other teams. So all they have to do is not fall down and just keep that same, like, keep that same, not rhythm, but execute the lead out. And there's no, there's no ability for them to lose, right? In Tulsa Tough on Friday night, I think you and I were watching it, Rob. And when Sam pulled off on that back stretch, I said the race is over because I knew that that was, they've been negative splitting the last five laps already. And when Sam pulled off, like everyone from that point on was going to do like one afterburner burn and then off. And, as lo- and at that point, they're going so fast and his corners are so frequent. You just, there's not enough real estate to come around. So the, the outcome is done. Everyone and everyone behind is in single file. And all you got to do is not fall down in whatever place you're in there. That's the place you finish. And I remember uh, the late, great Steve Tilford was talking about the United Healthcare train a few years ago saying he act, he honestly liked it when they did that finally, because it meant that whatever place he was in, he was, that was where he was going to finish <laughs> as long as he didn't yeah. fall down. And so that part's interesting to me. Um, and it's fun. It's fun to, to watch that and to figure that out. So the last point here that I want to see if we we can make is kind of a a piece of advice for Alan, for myself, for people who, if you are Justin Williams, if you're Corey Williams, if you're Danny Estevez, if you are an elite sprinter, if you're Kendall, if you're Skyler, if you're Maggie Colslister, if you're Celine Oberholzer, you are going to find teams because people need people who are going to finish. The rest of us, the working class of the bike racing world who need to be good teammates, you know, that's how we market ourselves to teams. Masters, elite, whatever it happens to be, you want to be on a team that has success, which means you need to market yourself to that team. What are the characteristics that we should work on developing and presenting so that we can be the next Alec Cowan, the next Sam Boardman. Man, I can't grow the hair to be a Sam Boardman. Alex got some sweet hair too, so. so. Uh, yeah, Alex Cowan has some, but he cut his hair too, I think. Uh, anyway, I'll say this part and then Alan, let me, I want to hear your, because you're you're in the game right now. When I was when I was running the Elevate team, it was Mercy Cycling and then Think Finance and then Elevate and then when Elevate and KHS came together, then it all got handed off to, to Paul Abrahams, who's done a fantastic job with the squad ever since. Um, I, I never really looked too hard at any rider that didn't win races. And, and my reasoning was this. 
Well, first off, I got that concept from, I'm ripping this idea off from Jed Schneider, who Jed Schneider ran Jittery Joe's for years, which I think, I don't know where Jittery Joe's went. They, they went on to become other teams you've probably heard of, but at the time it was Jittery Joe's. And I never really looked too hard at riders that didn't win races because one, if you can't win in your backyard, you can't win anything big ever, right? Two, and maybe more, especially more importantly for role players is that if you don't know how to win yourself, then you don't understand the spots that have to happen in a race, the spots you have to hit in a race that like lead to different like decision trees that can lead you to a victory, right? So like a criterion, it's really easy. Like if you're the first person through the last corner, the odds of you winning are pretty darn good. Not a hundred unless, unless you're a superstar, but pretty good. So how do you help that facilitate that to happen? But if you don't know how to win, then you don't really understand how to execute that. But until you know like what these spots are, you can't help anyone else get there. And so that was my reasoning behind all that. Alan, what do you, what do you see in the Peloton now as far as what riders would think? I mean, yeah, I would agree with that a hundred percent. You know, if you don't, know how to win i would say on some level you probably don't have the confidence or even the ability to be even as a lead out guy or a role player be where you need to be at the end of the race to give your sprinter or the finisher like a chance to do their job yeah i mean as far as what people need to do you know it it all depends on what you're kind of predisposed to if you're a sprinter or if you're going to be a sam boardman type But at the same time, it goes back to, I think, why there were only four teams that ever got on a podium is because those four teams have the guys that know what to do and are able to do it over and over again, while the rest of us were kind of, you know, learning along the way and figuring figuring it out as we went. The good thing is that Alan has six wins in his career, so he's clearly figured out how how it works. Yes, I have done it. And most importantly... He's going to be racing for CS Velo again next year, so he doesn't have to worry about anything, right? But the six wins is a big deal. Like, how many different people have won a USA Crits race in the last three years? It's it's like twenty. It's not many. And I and I had a client that he was bummed about his cross season because he didn't feel like he was very good that year. And I was like, hold on, like you won two races. How many cross racers win a race? <laughs> nonetheless two years two two races in the same year like that's a big deal don't don't undersell yourself on that because winning is hard yeah it is i mean even coming from racing like uci races when i come back to boise like a win's a win man it feels good even if it's maybe a smaller scale than like the biggest race you've done that year and to be able to put it together on the day like should be something you should appreciate for sure and and like a state championships there's always someone at state championships that comes out of the woodwork who's who will like nuke the peloton given the opportunity and and but they race twice a year everyone no one knows their name so it's still it's just always hard to always you you earn you don't you're never given a win Thanks for joining us on another episode of the show. We are a proud part of the Wide Angle Podium network of shows. 
WideAnglePodium.com. Go there, find out about the full bevy of shows that are available for your listening pleasure. Today's episode was written, produced, and edited by me with the assistance of our senior men's correspondent, Alan Schroeder. And a special thank you to Adam Mills from Source Endurance, who helped brainstorm a lot of these ideas and was such a wonderful guest. Can't wait to have him on again in the near future. We have one more show for you this calendar year. It is a retrospective with Celine, Allen, and I that will focus on what we liked about 2021. If you've got suggestions, thoughts, or comments on what you liked, send them our way. We're at Twitter, we're on Twitter or on Instagram at Criterium Nation, and we have an email address, criteriumnation at gmail.com. Find us there. We'll see you again next week for more stories from our Criterium Nation.